Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Sometimes it's easy to just see things to truly understand what's happening inside them. This is true for humans at all levels, but also particularly for biological processes. Whether that means making a more easy to diagnose test kit for viral diseases, or for finding a better way to look at what's happening inside proteins when they interact inside your body. We look at different ways of imaging and understanding what's going on with biological processes that can be especially hard to track. One of the reasons I always struggled with understanding chemistry and biology is that when you're exposed to it in textbooks in high school, you often get exposed to formulas. And these formulas can seem complicated, strange, and they add together and subtract and weird stuff happens, but you don't really understand exactly what is occurring. This process is further abstracted, I find, at least in biology, because you're trying to understand how things function, proteins interact with each other, how things go on inside of a cell. And without having a real clear understanding physically of what happens, it's difficult to get your head around. By contrast, I find engineering topics much easier because even in electricity, I can visualize what is happening. That's maybe just the way my brain works. But it's a big challenge because in engineering sense, in a mechanical machine, I can see exactly how it is put together. And if I watch it move, I can reverse engineer or figure out how it works. In the same way, we can play around with electric circuits and figure out how they work. Slightly more complicated, but you get the idea. It's not as easy or as quick to do that with biological circuits or biological processes. Maybe you can have some quick chemical reactions, and I've certainly done my fair share of science demos that have that in them. But understanding the way processes like the way proteins behave is way more complicated. And the way molecular chemistry works and the way processes occur inside of our body is not easy to learn because of a lot of that reason. Understanding how these happen through good visualizations is a really important part of a lot of science communication. And believe me, there are some amazing people who do some phenomenal, not I wouldn't call them animations, because they're actually scientific diagrams of how these proteins interact with each other, how molecular chemistries, DNA, our organs, all of these things work. Now, that's amazing science put together by turning that theory into practice. But on the other side, if we want to learn more, understand exactly how things behave, those 2D equations are actually three-dimensional processes interacting with each other. And scientists would love a really nice way to understand exactly what is happening to catch a lot of these chemical reactions in action. The problem is, it's not easy. You need to understand, for example, in a protein, how those molecules form and how those forms themselves, the shape, actually assist its function. In the last 20 years, we've built up a more and more detailed understanding of, based on the amino acid building blocks, on how proteins work. But researchers like physics professor Mark Sherwin from UC Santa Barbara puts out, Imagine you're an alien and you see a picture of a sewing machine. You would have a hard time figuring out what it does, but if you saw a movie, you would have a much better idea. And the problem is, we can't really get movies of proteins in action. They're large when it comes to molecules, relatively speaking, but they're still only a few nanometers long. That's a hundred times smaller than using an optical microscope we can actually visualize. So that is the first problem. The fact that we can't get our microscopes to peer in on them in action makes it very, very difficult. And the problem, other problem is that they exist in a wet, squishy environment. 
they're not a solid object, which means we can't use a lot of other techniques. And it means also you can't actually get good movies of them because, well, fluid's always moving and flowing around. So trying to see a biological process in action is incredibly difficult. And that's what researchers like Shinimati and others from UC Santa Barbara have published in the journal Argonvant Chemi, a way of trying to capture some images or some understanding of how proteins work in motion. This is a big deal, not only for people like myself trying to understand how they work, but also for researchers understanding how in which they function. Now, it's much easier for scientists at the moment to look at a picture of a protein when they're frozen. And if you get enough of these pictures, you can kind of create like a stop motion animation, start the action, freeze the protein, take an image and repeat and repeat. The problem is you're stopping and starting the protein and it's often difficult and time consuming. But on top of that, if you're doing all this flash freezing of the protein, trying to stop it in the right spot, it's not the same. Imagine if you try to take photos of somebody walking naturally, interrupting them each different movement of the leg, and then comparing that to a video of someone walking naturally, you'll find that the gates are very, very different. And on this level, that's certainly true, but also for the protein, you're fundamentally changing it by actually freezing it in and with a flash freezing process and then restarting it. So what these researchers have published in the Journal of One Chemi is a way to track the movement of proteins in a lifelike environment after the motion has been triggered by some kind of external event. They use a visible light pulse in this case. They call it the time resolve gendelum gendelum electron parametric resonance or digger. And it's pretty tricky. Lots of chemistry and quantum mechanics involved. And as well as that, specialized equipment and bioengineering. But through this process, they found a way to actually see proteins, relatively speaking, in action. So the mechanism involves tagging two spots on the protein and then tracking the distance between these labels as the protein moves along. And when I say move along, I mean the protein unfolds and refolds itself. By tracking the distance of these different points, you can see what happens. This is all built around a gadolinium atom or ion. And this electron lines up in such a way it behaves almost like a magnet. If you place this in a strong magnetic field, well, it will wobble or align itself to that magnetic field. So if you put it in a molecular cage to stabilize it and get some chemical scaffolding to tie it to the protein, then you basically get a tagging process of the protein itself. This is involving some complicated wobbling of this little ion, but it actually means you've got a marker attached to the side of this protein. You can measure this precisely using some pretty intricate measurement techniques involving a laser, a special type of laser, specifically of those operating in a microwave oven. You've got to have to capture lots of sub terahertz waves to make sure that you're catching specifically the right frequency of the iron, make sure the waves are absorbed correctly. And with that, you can actually just precisely measure how that little iron, the gandolinium is attached that to the protein is moving. So you can track through this really complicated laser-based quantum mechanics chemistry, molecular, biology, all involved in the one thing to sort of track the way these little gandolinum ions are strangled or attached to the protein are moving over time.
end result of all of that complicated process is you've got a protein that's luminous and you're tracking the different edges of it. Now, this was a pretty cool thing. They developed a mechanism by which you could watch precisely two points on a protein. So then what protein are you gonna watch? Well, they picked a relatively popular and versatile protein to study as their first case. It belongs to the light oxygen or voltage LOV family of proteins, specifically the light activated protein ASLOV2. Now, LOV proteins control processes ranging from the circadian rhythm in bacteria, plants, and fungi to phototrophism that you would find in plants and microorganisms. So this is a really key protein involved in anything to do with light sensing. Now, this is great because it's popular with scientists and engineers because it's easy to make and simple to manipulate. So therefore the ideal one to investigate. You can also then use in this case light as a remote control to turn the protein on and off. Problem is you can use light to activate or deactivate this protein, but to get exactly to do exactly what you want, it's, it's tricky because this protein can offer a tool to study microbes living in anaerobic environments like the human gut, but it's only if it does what you want it to do. And that's where understanding the way in which those proteins move and behave would be really beneficial. So it's a great one to study with this tagging process, TIGA, but it is important because it's not exactly simple as well. Now, the overall technique is not necessarily sophisticated, as you would call it today. And this process dates way back to senior authors Sherwin, Mark Sherwin and Song Hee Han, professor of chemistry as well, all the way back to their first quest to try and film proteins way back in 2006. So it's 2023 and we still aren't you know, able to take a full visual image of these things, but they are now able to produce a one-dimensional trajectory of a protein's movement by these measuring these two points. Now, this is seeming like not a hell of a lot of information, and you're right. You're only tracking the movement of two points on an individual protein, but you can repeatedly measure them. And if you take that protein and put it in another location or another process, another area, and repeat the same measurement, all of a sudden, you're learning a lot. You're learning how the protein behaves in different environments, building up an idea of the way the protein moves. Once you have this data, well, then you can take that to a CGI animation or a simulation where you can really use this process information with real inputs of understanding, ah, okay, this is the way that the protein actually moves in these different scenarios or locations. This is really helpful because it helps us understand exactly what a protein is up to, even if you're only understanding a little bit of its complicated life and motion. So yes, we don't have the ability to take amazing videos of proteins acting on a molecular scale just yet, but by using this clever mechanism, tagging the proteins with certain ions and measuring precisely the movements or distance of those ions, we actually have a unique way to understand what is happening inside proteins in different regions in action. This is a cool technique developed by the University of California at Santa Barbara, published in the journal Argovac Chemi, that shows the long difficult process for trying to understand exactly what is happening inside our bodies and inside that of plants and animals, you name it, and understanding really molecular chemistry and the way it interacts with the world around it. The only way we can see down to that is with some pretty clever analysis and signaling techniques, which is exactly what they've done here. In this case, the journal published in Akhmat Chemi with lead author Shinya Mati under the direction of principal researchers Songhi Han and Mark Shaw. Oh, yeah.
The world is now a lot more familiar with the idea of PCR testing, testing for all kinds of viral diseases, which many of us wouldn't have actually ever had done in our lives or that common before, but now we probably all had our fair share. Now, the problem is all these diagnostic tests for viral diseases still involve a pretty complicated step at the end there to actually prepare the sample or interpret the result, which means that compared to, say, an antigen test kit or a rapid antigen test, which has a very clear reading of it, sometimes at least, it's much harder to do that with other diagnostic methods because someone has to sit there and interpret the results, which is published in the journal ACS Central Science. A pretty interesting process that can be used to analyze viral nucleic acids in as little as around 20 minutes and can be completed in one step, not a multi-step process, involving glow-in-the-dark proteins. Now, all of this makes use of the phenomena you may know as bioluminescence. Bioluminescence is a chemical reaction involving the luciferase protein, light bringer, of course, which has been incorporated into all kinds of biological systems, whether that be anglerfishes glowing lures to the ghostly blue glow of phytoplankton on a beach. Bioluminescence is pretty cool, and it can also cause a glow-in-the-dark-like effect. Now, if you take that luciferase protein and you incorporate it into sensors that emit an easily observed light when they find their target, well, that would make for a pretty useful diagnostic tool. These are simple tools, simple types of sensors that are what you want in a point of care type scenario, like you would have with a rapid antigen test. But so far, we've not really had any of these luciferase-based protein test sensors that are actually accurate enough to be used as a kind of clinical diagnostic test. So what can you do? Well, if we use techniques like CRISPR, you can improve the ability of these proteins or these systems to work better. But okay, that still involves lots of specialized equipment to try to make a low signal in a complex, nausea environment. So if you could use CRISPR on these related proteins to boost their bioluminescence input, maybe you could find a way so that they could be detected with just a simple and basic digital camera. And that's what the researchers, including lead author on this paper, Harman van der Veer, and others under the direction of Martin Merckx, had been investigating. So they took a sample of RNA or DNA to make sure they had enough to analyze. They used recombinase polymerase amplification, basically a way to boost the data available in the sample by an amplifying method. And this can be done at relatively low temperature. As long as you have a constant temperature of around 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which is pretty relatively low speaking, compared to you know, most other chemical processes you may be familiar with. And then they used a new technique called LUNIS, LUNIS, Luminescent Nucleic Acid Sensor, and two specific CRISPR-Cas9 proteins which are used to differentiate and identify neighboring parts of a viral genome and attach luciferase to them. So basically, these proteins go through, hunt through the viral sample, and if they find what they're looking for, attach a fragment of the bioluminescent luciferase to them. This is pretty cool. It's basically using a technique to attach markers, bioluminescent markers, to something where you should have identified as bad. And all of this is happening on a molecular chemistry level, which is pretty cool. Now, in a specific viral genome, the researchers were testing, they had these proteins binding and attaching to the nucleic acid sequences right on the other side. And they could then get them to shine a blue light in the presence of some kind of chemical substrate being used. 
Now the problem is bioluminescence isn't enough. That's not really easy and clear to interpret. Now you've got to have someone who's got to interpret whether or not the light is the right light. So in the same way in your rapid antigen test kits or ATPs, whatever you want to call them, they have two lines, a control that is already illuminated or reacts or lines up when you have a normal process occur, and then a second line which lines up where you have the positive sample result occur. They use a similar technique, but instead of being different lines on a piece of paper, you actually have different colors. In this case, using the chemical substrate as a base, it just, when it has a control reaction, it just shines green. That means that the proteins didn't find anything to attach the luciferase to, the bioluminescence to. If they do, then the light actually changes to blue to indicate a positive result. And they show that this could work with this RPA Lunas technique to successfully detect SARS-CoV-2 RNA within 20 minutes in relatively low concentrations, around as low as 200 copies per microliter. This is pretty cool because it's a proof of concept for maybe, yes, this is an example on COVID, but there's other cases where you would want to have a very fast detection of all other kinds of viruses without requiring specific lab personnel to do all that testing and analysis. This is a cool technique using bioluminescence to work for us to make simpler and more powerful diagnostic tests. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Being able to watch what a protein does in real time without having to rely on freezing them, plus ways to make better test kits that can have illumination to help to give us correct test results. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.